everybody and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. My name is Amelia, I'll be one of your co-hosts for today and as always I am joined by Tim Silverwood for this very special episode of the Pitchfest 2022 series, episode 8. Tim, I can't believe it, we're very near to the end now. I can't believe that we're going to be talking about potatoes and Ocean Impact. It's my two of my favourite subjects to be quite honest. <laughs> Now, it's a great episode today with Karen and Peter from Beast. Uh, and Tim, they joined us from snowy Netherlands on what was a warm 30 degree day here in Australia. Yeah, it often is funny when you're doing these podcasts in completely different hemispheres and uh, what they are experiencing is quite often very different to what you are. So yeah, it was really great of them to join though. Um, some of the team, they've got a pretty decent sized team um, and it was really nice to have Karen and Peter on the show. Yeah, with you know, twice as nice when we've got two instead of one uh, on the podcast. And, you know, we talked about the Netherlands there for a little bit and Beast's solution, I guess, you know, it's inspired by uh, the mudflats uh, in the Netherlands, which is they're powered naturally by muscle banks. And I guess they noticed that once these muscle banks were lost, uh, they were very difficult to bring back. And without them, the ecosystem of the mudflats really suffered. And then on top of that, they kind of, you know, as we all do, we know that this chicken and egg scenario, I guess, is true of many, many ecosystems, you know, mangroves, coral, seagrass, salt marsh, oysters too. So Tim, you know, when we talk about ocean challenges, this chicken and egg flow on effect seems to be something that comes up a lot, isn't it? Yeah. And this is a huge one. I think we can all picture being down in estuaries or rivers and seeing those zones that have been, uh, you know, dilapidated and degraded and all you're left with is this barren surface that's subject to erosion and there's very little biodiversity and like you said just going out there and sticking a mangrove shoot in the mudflat is not going to solve the problem it's going to get washed away and you're going to end up investing a lot of money and a lot of time and get nowhere so it's a very cryptic problem and one of the things I really love about Beast is they haven't gone out there as just bold entrepreneurs and said oh we think we know the answers let's just do this they're very very much rooted in academia and science so a lot of the projects that these guys are involved with are in collaboration with scientists and with universities and so they're understanding as they go the best solutions for the job and, and that's obviously illustrated in a range of products that they've now brought out uh, the pitch video that they obviously got them the uh, the nod as one of the finalists really does focus a lot on that beast elements that wonderfully intricate 3d printed grid-like system that you know pops into that uh, that mud flat and provides a beautiful stable environment for seagrasses and mangroves etc but they've got a bunch of other products too so really love that they are so scientifically rooted because i think it's critically important in order to reach the kind of scale that's going to be required to restore these vulnerable ecosystems Exactly. And, you know, you can kind of see, and they, they talk through this in the episode, that this is where nature often provides the inspiration, I guess. So um, a lot of the, their products uh, do mimic nature. Not all have got a variety. Um, but as you mentioned, Beast Elements, the one that kind of got them the, the nod for Pitchfest uh, as one of our finalists, you know, that is mimicking uh, these natural structures and then it breaks down once the organisms kind of take hold and the natural structures take over uh, and that is where you know enter the humble potato and that's where it really starts to to take place so their products are made partly from uh, potato scrap 
waste. So, you know, you can have your hot chips and eat them too. And we love potato and its many applications here at OIO, uh, whether it's from food or ocean impact solutions. And we've seen other startups utilize this kind of waste product uh, really creatively. So it was great to see another one of these uh, where, you know, eventually it just goes back to nature. That's it. I mean, this easily could have been a startup that chose to adopt a petroleum-based substrate to, to build this stuff. But of course, they know the problem that they're trying to solve and certainly don't want to create any more problems than they're trying to solve. So yeah, they've got circularity uh, in mind. They're using a waste byproduct to be the feedstock to create their, their materials. And they want to make sure that what they're putting into nature can one day return to nature. So yeah, I think it really got uh, the judges clearly on side, uh, recognising that these guys have got a wonderful solution ready to scale. I got looking at some of my notes here, I believe they've got you know, 57 projects under their belts across 20 countries and uh, we just want to see more of them. So hope everyone gets a big kick out of this episode and starts thinking about hmm, maybe my local government, my local council could be using similar products um, in our backyard because I've gone down to look at the river and it looks in a pretty bad way. It could do with some mangrove or some seagrass restoration. So they have got projects in Australia. They've got a lot of networks and conversations taking place here and uh, we wish them all the power. Yes, the very best of luck to the whole team at Beeson. Thank you guys for uh, joining us for this episode of the podcast. And thanks everyone for listening. I hope you enjoy it. If you do, leave us a bit of feedback. We do appreciate it. Cheers, Tim. Thanks, everyone. I'm so excited to have on the Ocean Impact podcast today, Karen and Peter from Beese, who are going to be telling us all about their incredible solution for habitat restoration and restoring these coastal ecosystems. You were a finalist in Pitchfest 2022. How are you both today? Yeah, we're great. Calling in from a snowy Netherlands. <laughs> I can't believe this. This is one of the beautiful things about being able to do these podcasts uh, completely virtually is it's over 30 degrees Celsius where I am in Australia and it's snowing where you guys are in the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah, quite a difference. So let's get right to the core of this podcast, which is your solution to an ocean challenge. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just enlightening us to what it actually is you're doing with Beast and, and how it came about. Yeah, so I will explain a bit. We um, try to restore nature with biodegradable products and the origin of this idea came from all these mudflats we have in the Netherlands, but it used to be mussel reefs, but it's really hard on a bare mudflat to get a mussel reef back because you have the currents, you have the waves. And this is true for a lot of ecosystems around the globe, especially the coastal ones. So like the 2% of fringing ecosystems that store the most carbon are nursery for fish. And they have this same chicken and egg problem. So once it's away, it's really hard to get it back because normally a reef would dampen the currents or a mangrove forest or a salt marsh. Um, so these so-called ecosystem engineers are really hard to get back. So we were just thinking how cool would it be if you can create something where you would help kickstart these systems just for a while and then it biodegrades and then nature can do it all by itself. So uh, we had this idea and we tested it with plastic structures, great solution, but then we had to get it in a biodegradable form. So this was a journey of several years. It's really hard 
still to work with biodegradable uh, materials, uh, but we succeeded. So we, we invented these elements and it turned out to be good for muscle reefs, but for many other systems too. So that was the start of our company. And so fascinating. One of the obviously central things of your application to PitchFest 2022 was this very dynamic pitch video made by an intern, I believe. Um, but just to be able to see these remarkable products, beast elements predominantly, it's a really incredible material. How did that particular design come about? I believe you're the inventor, are you, Karen? Yes, that's true. Yeah, we were just thinking of something that needed to look a bit like either stems of plants or roots of plants or muscle reams are very complex, but not too heavy. So we uh, found an existing mold for another material and just use it with potato starch biopolymers. And that's the start of our product. Yeah, it's actually quite cool that the potato starch in this product is from a very old family company in the Netherlands that uh, was three generations ago just collecting uh, potato peels for... uh, pigs more or less and they are now this fancy biopolymer company so uh, uh, we use their product to make our structure yeah one of the things that's so important with any pitch is what's that initial hook which grabs people's attention and i just can imagine you know your elevator pitch is like oh you know we do habitat restoration using potato waste and people are like (laughs) you got to tell me more about that so (laughs) yeah so you used initially conventional petroleum plastic to get the design right to show it was feasible but you knew straight away I'm assuming that that really wouldn't have the kind of social or ecological license to be going and putting plastic into the environment was that very early on clear that you needed to use a find and use a biodegradable material yeah so we we went in and we were standing on the mud flat and then we knew straight away you wouldn't want to leave any plastics in a um, nature restoration area so but then there's nothing available so you We'll just see if the principle of the structure works. And then we had a lot of muscle sediment. So that was a very good first result. And then we really had the energy to push it to get a biodegradable structure. So safe to say then we've, we've spoken about obviously the problem, which is that all these natural habitats are being impacted by humans and there's a need to intervene and to help kickstart these ecosystems. And traditionally you really what else was done if if beast wasn't doing what you're doing how are other land and coastal managers how are they solving this problem what what have you done differently compared to what the convention was yeah so there's quite some uh, locations where you can just uh, like maybe plant uh, salt marsh vegetation or if you stop fishing and nature will do the restoration by itself but especially in these harsh conditions so in the more dynamic situation where you have too much waves and currents, it's a really big problem. And from all around the globe, we get these um, projects that are failing. So it's really also very expensive to have all these efforts and then no results. So that's uh, basically, I think there's a, many ways to do it, but um, the structure is just very easy to use and then it biodegrades. So that's uh, the novelty of it. And it's also uh, with not so much material doing 
already a lot for the ecosystems you want to restore. Great. Yeah, so basically if uh, conventional restoration methods work, then you don't necessarily need bees. But if you have trouble um, restoring the environment, then bees can really give the, the difference to uh, help uh, with the restoration process. Or if you choose not to use any uh, plastics or other polluting materials, of course. Mm. And I can just imagine, I mean, you can look at some of those impact uh, metrics that you've achieved in, in recent years on your website and so many of these stakeholders that you must be engaging with. There's something beautiful, obviously, about the the positive impact it's making the results, but it's also a very, very engaging way and I can see so many people becoming involved and educated in your projects because it's so tactile and so novel so do you find that's a key tool to help you actually secure projects and expand the business yeah it's it's the most fun part of this job well our company it's really like spreading the word. So we have, we call it clicking parties where we click bees and then we work either with uh, people like nature restoration managers or volunteers. And there's so much knowledge to be exchanged. So it's really a fascinating process to be in this. And then it's also the mouth to mouth advertisement that is giving us the most uh, projects, so to say. So it's really uh, also a social aspect that is making this uh, company a success and also making the results uh, better because we improve the method still based on all this knowledge that is exchanged. So it's really fun, really uh, a nice part to add to nature restoration. When you were inventing this solution all those years ago, could could you imagine it was going to be utilized in over 20 countries and, and having this impact on not just the planet, but on, on people and, and communities? No, no, the problem, well, we were solving this Dutch problem, so to say. So, so sometimes I just look back like several months and then I see where all the projects are and how many nice results we get back. And it's really uh, fascinating. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, couldn't, I couldn't have imagined it, no. So tell us a little bit about some of the other products then. We've been talking a little bit about elements, but there's there's other products as well. Uh, tell me a little bit about what they are trying to solve and, and perhaps a little bit of how they were uh, conceptualized. Yeah, so first of all, I will uh, explain a bit about uh, a bee smash. So that's just merely a plastic replacement. So a lot of, uh, especially oyster restoration programs, uh, use plastic mesh. So when we had these bees elements, we, we got a lot of requests. So do, don't you have a replacement? So we aim for this, but this is just a plastic replacement. But we also um, developed something new. And I think Peter can best explain it's the bees reef based. Yeah, so um, with the, the bees reef based, um, we like you see with multiple oyster reef restoration products, just like uh, old shells of oysters have been collected and then they are planted out in the ocean. Um, but we have uh, bees have found a way to yeah make the oysters in a fine powder and then um, create that into a product which you can use as a paste to put on um, yeah, different kind of uh, structures or even use as a material itself. And that's a great product if you place it into the sea where oysters come back to the to the surface, especially for the, the flat oyster in the Netherlands. Uh, that's, that really favors um, this yeah, bees reef base to settle upon and allows um, yeah, the flat oyster to return to areas where normally it's impossible for the flat oyster to uh, to come back to. I love the, um, you tell a bit of a story on the website about how you've used an old windmill to actually create some of that paste, which was a beautiful round story. 
Yeah, yeah. So we we are now using the well clumps of this paste with shells in uh, offshore wind farms, and we managed to get a very old, like the last standing chalk mill in the Netherlands to grind the material for us. So it's going from the windmill to the windmill, and uh, well, it's just also in this journey very cool to be able to connect to these old techniques that are actually quite interesting still. So innovation is good, but learning from past techniques is, I think, very useful too. So we tend to do that a lot because if you work with natural materials, they used to have a lot of experience with it back in the day. So yeah, it's really cool to connect to this chalk mill where all the houses in Amsterdam are built with chalk that was made from this uh, mill. So that's a really cool story for us too. (laughs) And one of the things I really like about your startup is that it's so grounded in academia and then science and research. And that's obviously so important, I suppose, particularly at this cutting edge of biopolymers and particularly those that are going into coastal and marine environments. I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit about the journey into making sure that the claims that you make and what you believe the product can do actually stacks up in the environment. It must be a constant process of R&D and testing and bringing in scientific partners. Yeah, yeah. So there's two sides in the story. So first of all, we uh, developed the bees elements together with a scientist. So he's a professor in coastal ecology in uh, in the Netherlands, Jesse van der Heide. So that's the reason that we already started with a lot of science added to uh, the first applications of uh, bees elements. And now we're really used to it. So we really want to not only see how it works, but also prove how it works. So we just test a lot of things and uh, we also connect to a lot of scientists because it's just very interesting also to add their ideas to our story. And I think like it's a connection that's going both ways. So they are looking at interesting new angles and we have these materials, but they can be different and tested in very many ways. So so far it has been really nice and we work with universities i think in every country that we uh, work in uh, so it's not the sole projects we have we also work for uh, constructors or uh, just uh, foundations that want to restore something but it's really uh, yeah we partner with scientists in every country just to get uh, local knowledge also added to the product yeah most of the time these scientists are the front runners in uh yeah restoration efforts so uh, those are actually the people who uh, also really want to uh, know that it's scientifically a sound product yeah no, absolutely fantastic okay so um we're going to do a little bit of a pivot now to talking a little bit about you as individuals right you're both working in a very exciting startup with a really great positive ocean and coastal and societal impact so Obviously, Karen, one of the co-founders, so you've been there for a while, but, but Peter, you're a, a newcomer. So perhaps I can get a little glimpse from both of you around why it is that you're so passionate about working in this industry and and, uh, and why you do what you do. Yeah, so I, I think what I like is that it's a combination of getting a lot of knowledge, like literally in the water, and then also see the results and improve it. So it's really like a, I'm very curious by nature. So this is really nice in my job to have a problem that you try to solve, but in the meantime, add all this knowledge to it. And also, well, it's so 
um, amazing to talk with all these people that have the same problems worldwide. So it really feels like a global connection because we all have the same problem. And that's my personal passion in this field. So, well, sometimes we have to work hard, but it doesn't feel so hard if you do it with a lot of people. So that's basically it. I think it's just a challenge we have in this uh, decade to try to find new ways to help nature in in the oceans a bit uh, more forward. Yeah. And uh, I joined uh, in September and... um... I, I was new to the company, but I could really feel there is this, this ambition, this passion for uh, for nature restoration and to do it the right way. So without any pollution, without leaving uh, any uh, traces of uh, mankind behind and uh, repairing the environment in that way. And yeah, the whole combination of um, uh, developing something very useful, uh, new to, to help the environment to restore and also uh, going out into the field every now and then to, uh, to deploy the, the, the products. Yeah, that's just a dream job for me to be able to do. I wonder if you could take us on a little bit of a, a journey to a, to a recent project site where you've gone into the field and maybe give us a bit of a glimpse at who the stakeholders were that uh, sought your help to come and do some restoration and then what it's like to actually be on the ground and involving community and seeing the impact take place. If you could maybe choose a, a recent example or one that's a real highlight. I know you've got a lot of case studies on the website. <laughs> yeah, we just have to pick one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think may- maybe Peter can start with uh, a mangrove project in Indonesia and I will add something totally different. <laughs> All right, yeah, cool. <laughs> Let's do that. So yeah, uh, November... We went to Indonesia. We've been there before, uh, without me, uh, before uh, the COVID pandemic. But uh, when the borders opened up, we could go back to Indonesia, where we have a mangrove restoration uh, uh, pilot project going on in collaboration with the local Patimura University in uh, in Ambon. And there, um, yeah, we went there for for uh, ten days, and um, we had this yeah this big group of students. We, we were all very enthusiastic to help out, and they quickly understood. Um, um, what the purpose was with the beast elements and how to uh, deploy them to uh, restore the uh, mangrove uh, forest. And yeah, they just we just explained it, we went in the field and uh, with one explanation, they started doing it themselves. And there was this, yeah, this great energy going on and trying to uh, restore their, their mangroves. And afterwards, in the end, just taught them a little bit how to do all the measurements themselves. And now on a regular basis, the, the measurements are going in, coming in to, uh, yeah, to see the results, how the mangroves are holding up in the bees elements. So in that instance, Peter, and, and you can chime in, Karen, is um, are they simply purchasing product or are they engaged in a longer-term project with consultancy and lots of opportunities, I suppose, for revenue to come in? How does a project like that one work? Do <laughs> you, you want to explain? Well, this is a demonstration project, so... Um, the main um, role of the university is to add the local knowledge, but it's uh, our project. But uh, we also have a lot of projects where uh, the well, the local partner is the, like the, the one rolling it out. So just starting with a pilot and then scaling up. And then we, if if they get a grasp of how of how to use the products, we start off with like a clicking party and placing it out the first time. And if they know how to use it, we will just send off the materials so they can uh, do it by themselves. Uh, but we really want to add the right knowledge because it, you can imagine how difficult it is to get to know a site and know how exactly 
how to place something in order to make optimal use of the function of this structure. So we are really keen to not only sell products, but also uh, add the knowledge and more or less sell nature restoration instead. So that's uh, our goal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, nature restoration as a service, I suppose, is a great model for, for future revenue as well, as opposed to just selling products. Yeah. 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 And that's also uh, helping us to connect to these projects in the long term. So we will get some knowledge back, which we then can use in uh, projects in another part of the world. So that's really, uh, I think, a growing model that is helping not only us, but also the restoration practitioners around the globe. Yeah. Great. And you might have another case study to, to speak to Karen as well. Yeah. So I'm I'm just trying to choose between because you're in Australia. So maybe that's a nice example. <laughs> I just visited uh, in January and I was um, able to go in the field to some sites, but we have some really nice partners there. So a long-term partner is uh, Healthy Land and Water, uh, which has been uh, using the structure since 2017. So first of all, it was a oyster reef restoration project and we now revisited it and it's really like seemingly a natural reef. So there used to be more or less square blocks, but now it's biodegraded. So it looks really uh, fun, but we went into the field for a new project and then we just had a really large group of people. They already had the product, but we just more or less did some trials with how to use it, how would it work? And then it's really starting to also, uh, um, well, they, they see the end results more or less uh, appearing. So normally you're working with drawings and reports. So it's all like on paper and on screens, but going into the fields is really useful because then you can just see how you should do it. So that's what we did with a group of 15 people and uh, had a lovely day, of course, with sun. <laughs> Yeah, so that's what we did there. And then we also went to uh, Sydney where uh, some uh, very hardworking scientists are trialing uh, the material, the bees elements for uh, oyster restorations in a lot of different estuaries around uh, Sydney. So that's, yeah, some nice examples of uh, what you can do in a week when you're going out into the fields. Yeah. How exciting. Where is the site with the Healthy Land and Waterways Oyster Project? Where is that? Yeah, so the new one that is getting into the water, uh, well, this spring, your fall, um, is the Caboolture River. And it's just some stretches of the project. So it's a really large um, restoration project and bees will be uh, implemented in some stretches to uh, to help mangrove restoration. Yeah. Great. Just good for people that are tuning in who might be able to actually go and visit one of these sites and, and see it firsthand. But again, they can obviously go to the website and look at all the, the case studies as well there. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the, the key achievements and, and key challenges you've faced. So this might be you know, a bit more of a, a businessy type question for you, Karen. Like, What's it been like building the business and some key achievements and some key challenges? Yeah. So um, a key challenge is being ahead of the crowd. So it's really uh, nice to be ahead of the crowd, but it's also uh, challenging. So uh, one challenge is, for example, um, working with biopolymers. So the, the science of working with biopolymers is just in its early phase, whereas we really want to scale up. So we always have challenges with uh, getting the right material, improving the material, uh, getting it into... Uh, the mold where we where we make the structures so this is really a challenge and um we are still 
learning and we also still have ambitions to even use different types of biopolymers in the future, but it's just, yeah, a challenge we have. It's also the pricing of these type of materials. So it's of course a very nice uh, circular product, but it's much more expensive than uh, using plastics. So if you want to compete to a material and people have been using plastics for a decade, they think the material is really expensive, but I think you should look at it the other way. Plastic is just extremely cheap and it's really weird if you are willing to put polluting materials <laughs> in your oceans uh, because it's cheap. So I think we are getting to this challenge. People start to see this well as a common goal to not pollute the water so much but especially at the start we would talk to clients and then they would just compare the prices and then that, that's really hard when you start a company to be able to compete to a very cheap material it's just very difficult yeah yeah and then the well the key uh, achievements i think well as you can see we are working in so many countries and still i think we are not able to respond very swiftly to all the requests because we have so many. So that's really nice of our work. And then we still have so many ideas we want to put into practice. So it's, uh, yeah, the time that is a challenge, but there's still so much nice things to do. So that's really, I think there's a world ahead for biodegradable solutions for nature restoration. Yeah. Do you have many competitors? Is there other people out there that are like you or are you still really out there leading from the front without much competition? Yeah, so we, we, we are getting some followers and, well, it's sometimes a challenge, but I also see it as a, an advantage. I think it should be more common ground. Uh, but of course, it's also, especially because we do a lot of investments in materials in R&D, it's also a challenge for us. So we sometimes we have a phase of three years to develop something and then it's really hard. Of course, if you have a competitor that will just come by and use all this knowledge to, to do, do something similar. But I think overall... I don't know of a company that is very similar to ours, so uh, that's good for now. And also, the, yeah, adding all the knowledge and working with the scientists is really uh, unique, and it's getting uh, products that work very well. So that's something I don't think a lot of companies implement a lot. Yeah, great to hear. We might go over to you, Peter, for um, a discussion about the the road ahead. I believe you've been earmarked to, to respond to this one. So just talk a little bit about what you've got planned in the pipeline for the next year to two years. Well, in March, we go back uh, to uh, Indonesia to uh, check up on the, on the mangrove restoration project that's in place and to uh, ex- expand it a bit. Also try out with, uh, with a nursery idea. So very excited for that. At the same time, um, we're also uh, looking for a new R&D, uh, which includes, uh, includes coral reef restoration. So yeah, that's my, my main passion is coral reefs. So um, I'm also very eager to um, go further into the R&D part of the coral reef restoration uh, product. And I'm also hoping to test that out a little bit in Indonesia. So yeah, that's actually my main um, excitement points uh, going into the field and this new R&D into a coral reef restoration product. Yeah, and I think it's also nice. So we have been working in the Netherlands on repairing uh, vegetation restoration for many years now. And that's now really in a phase of upscaling. So we're doing now instead of like 50 meters, we're doing whole stretches of repairing vegetation with biodegradable materials, whereas it used to be concrete and plastic. So that's a really uh, nice achievement. Um, that we're very proud of and we have still some quite some projects in this direction 
as you know, maybe the Netherlands has a lot of canals and ditches, so there's quite some <laughs> riparian vegetation. So it's not ocean related, but it's a really nice way to use our products and just have the vegetation as the protection of your riverbank instead of plastic and concrete. Yeah, so there used to be this, uh, when I was still studying, there was this, this trend going on from, uh, from building with nature. But I think bees takes it a little step further and doing building nature and then using that to protect the areas. Mm, that's a really, really powerful little catchphrase there, building nature, not just building with nature. What about, the, the, I guess there's a, a really feels like a big boom swelling around us around sort of blue carbon and, and looking at those values on nature attached to being able to hold carbon and restore carbon reserves in, in coastal regions. Where is the intersection, I suppose, with beasts and those huge and growing opportunities around blue carbon capture? Yeah, we work a lot in blue carbon systems, so seagrass, mangroves, and we're now even starting to, because the, the, the beast elements are somewhat in a square meter size, to uh, connect to blue carbon proje projects where you can just buy a square meter uh, of this system in order to uh, add to uh, restoration projects just with uh, blue carbon credits. And of course, this is still in its early phase and it's not the only way we should restore these systems even without credits, but it's a nice way to add some more funds to these projects, I think. And it's really important. I mean... It's one of the, the things I do when I'm in the field. Of course, you work a lot with people that already know the importance of blue carbon. Uh, but especially if people don't know it, it's, it's so interesting to, to explain to people that it's even um, more important to restore these systems than planting trees. Because you have just so much more opportunities to save carbon in the ocean. So that's also a field that still needs a lot of attention. But it's getting there, I think. Yeah, no, we're seeing lots and lots of it and it just really does feel like there's a, a firecracker ready to, to burst up and, and light the sky and, and that's probably going to lead to a lot of people falling over themselves to try and get their hands on the best and closest opportunity and uh, I suppose that positions a company like Beast really well if you've got, like, again, that scientific uh, underpinning to make sure that it can be recorded and measured and, and bona fide and, and all that good stuff. So that's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we uh, work in, well, in a lot of blue carbon systems. So we also know how not only in the plants and in the roots, but also in the soil, this carbon is stored when you uh, just start these ecosystem engineering species. So that's really, uh, yeah, very important knowledge to get to uh, to the people and uh, the people that spend the money on nature restoration. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, guys, we're getting uh, closer to the end of our fantastic little conversation today. We do have one where we really like to sort of pick apart some of those key learnings from your journey as a startup founder so Karen this might be squarely at you um, yeah what are some words of wisdom or advice or red flags uh, for people out there that are starting their journey or on their way yeah I think uh, one big lesson is you just have to be patient especially if you work with nature it's not a matter of getting revenues within a year or develop something because it will just take time. And this also uh, allows for different business models because sometimes you just have to be patient. So adding a lot of money to a company will not give you the result because nature is just doing 
its job in 10 years and you just have to wait. So we are pioneering in this. So a slow growing company, but it's still uh, sometimes <laughs> going quite fast. <laughs> so I think that's good for especially p- people that uh, are used to normal business models that these kind of developments just need a different approach. And it's really, uh, yeah, interesting to think about it. So it's just like, uh, so starting off very fast and flattening off and wait for some results and then put a lot of energy in it again, whenever you have the right timing. So that's uh, basically one big lesson. The other one is if you have a good idea. So we were convinced this biodegradable structures are the future, but it's very hard to develop them. And also uh, once you have them, people have a lot of demands. So they want a different size and a different color and a different, I don't know, whatever. So just stand by our idea. So if it's a good idea, it will it will fly. But also for that, you need some patience and some, uh, yeah, maybe some nice colleagues to be around that are convinced of the same idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a third one is, uh, especially if you work in nature restoration, it's not only about nature, it's also about the people. We can learn a lot, for example, from your indigenous community. It was one of the best days of my career when I was doing this restoration project where, where the knowledge of indigenous people, they have so much more connection to nature. And I think that's really important for the future of ocean health and nature that It's just people that have to stay connected to nature in order to solve all these problems. And that should be part of all these efforts. So also of our business, but from every effort in nature restoration. Mm. Thank you for those three very powerful points. I'm sure they've been well received by everyone listening in. Peter, what about you? Like, I mean, just being attracted to working in in startups, is there some things that you've learned as, as joining a startup that are, that are valuable that people might respond to? Well, I already had some experience, luckily, by setting up a pilot coral reef restoration project in Kenya, and that also felt a bit like entrepreneuring. But yeah, I, I just, just love the whole entrepreneuring part, and it's very important. I think it's a little bit underestimated um, that you make your work very visual. So uh, I learned a lot during the coral reef restoration project that it's very important to get a lot of uh, good footage so you're able to convince other people who are not going underwater what your results are and make it very, a little bit sexy, make it more sexy than just the scientific numbers for for the public. And I think that's uh, a part that's often underestimated in the scientific world and uh, the nature restoration world. Couldn't agree more and I definitely encourage people to check out your social media and all those videos that you've created which actually give you a chance to not just you know, visualize what it looks like, but they can actually see it and they can see the people interacting with it. So yeah, well done on that. I think it's a really important one moving forward. Well, that sort of brings us to the end of my questions for you both today, but we, we do have a last session here where you can share anything that you really wanted to talk about today, but haven't had a chance to, and also give people a call to action. What, what can they do to support your mission or to see nature restoration in their part of the world? Yeah, I think it's good to know that like what we see, because we are on a global scale, we see that there's no difference between a very rich company that has a project or just volunteers along a waterway that start a project. So even you can start a nature restoration project. It's just that you should engage and start somewhere, maybe ask for help and uh, get some funding. So that's 
a message I have to people that are not in nature restoration themselves. And we have a lot of nice examples, for example, in uh, the United States, where uh, a lot of owners of uh, nice jetties that are along a waterway start something like under the jetty, and then it all of a sudden becomes a living shoreline project. So it can really start small and then become something really relevant. So that's uh, good to know. Yeah. Yeah, I think... um... Start doing it. That's the main message. People tend to overthink it or see a lot of obstacles along the way, but you can never really uh, see all the obstacles coming ahead. So um, yeah, have the right intentions and start doing it. Start talking to it about people and then uh, don't wait too long and start acting. And uh, that's the way uh, a snowball uh, goes rolling downhill and becomes a big snowball. So yeah, do it. I love it. And that's a big message today. You know, nature takes time. We've had a many couple of centuries now of, of vicious damage to these natural systems and it's going to take time to restore and to repair. So let's get down to business. Let's get to it. I really appreciate the work that you are all doing, the entire team at Beast, and I thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you too. Guys, we hope you enjoy this episode. Please leave us a bit of feedback. It really helps us out. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a review. On Spotify, you can let us know what you loved about the episode. And if you're watching on YouTube, feel free to drop us a comment or hit the like button. It means a lot. 